bless you for being an angel just when it seemed that heaven was not for me welcome to drunk church i'm cosima b concordia and i'm aurora layborn today we are going to be covering chapter one of Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk, Race, Traumatophilia by Avgi Saketapolo. And the chapter is called To Suffer Pleasure, Limit Experience and Transgression. And so because this is part of a larger series engaging with the work of Avgi Saketapolo, we highly encourage you to listen to our first episode on the book and then also to get your hands on a copy of the book and read along. So either via nyu press or via your local library absolutely and the link to nyu press is going to be in the notes for the episode and is in the notes for the last episode as well Mm -hmm. let's introduce the chapter much like the introduction avgi introduces the chapter to suffer pleasure with a vignette so let's talk a little bit about the psychoanalytic vignette yeah so we're introduced to adam and adam is with his boyfriend at this bathhouse, this like like gay bathhouse. And then a man that he describes as like repulsive comes inside just like dirty and and he he's like genuinely repulsed by this man. And mm-hmm. then his like husband leaves the room, is like disgusted, like I don't want to fucking be in here. But there's something about him, about that repulsion that also just like deeply drives Adam towards it, that he's torn between his repulsion and desire opening up in my body. And so he ends up being fucked by this stranger, this repulsive, grotesque stranger. And it's one of the most incredible sexual experiences of his life. He's completely overwhelmed. He's self-shattered. When orgasm came, he said, I exploded into thousands of tiny pieces. And so the experience itself felt incredibly good. But then afterward, he felt distressed about how it conflicted with his self-image as, you know, this kind of respectable gay man that distressed that his own disgust had been such a foundational part to his experience of such intense pleasure. Mm -hmm. She writes here, His sexual contact with this man also markedly contrasted how Adam understood himself to inhabit his white, middle-class gayness, Mm -hmm. clean, organized, together. Something that I think is also really important to note, he's not just in a bathhouse. He's in a bathhouse in a foreign country. So he's engaging in a kind of tourism. It's alluded to the fact that this man isn't just like filthy in his aspect. So it's not just that he's dirty but he's also like a foreigner or a native from wherever foreign like one imagines relatively exotic from a western perspective place that adam and his lover are visiting so there's a degree of orientalism that's also in play there's something that is like xenophobic about this disgust like race is at play too here Mm -hmm. yeah like how our ideas of disgust are always brought up and against our 
feelings of like bigotry and the taboo as a trans woman a a foundational nature of why so many people want to fuck us but don't want to admit to wanting to fuck us is because of this nature of it being this like taboo act that you're doing something that like transgresses you know the natural and Mm -hmm. then that feeling of disgust is also then the thing that incites the violence because to be attracted to the thing that also disgusts you you know is this deeply conflicting feeling between the ego and and desire Mm -hmm. and so adam tries to explain away some of this by like this man was incredibly well endowed but avgi kind of like questioned that i was not convinced that size was key and wondered if size were not being retroactively revised to spare adam the mortification that such a phenomenal orgasm could be caused by the welding of pleasure with disgust. Mm-hmm. This idea of abjection, this political objection of the horror of the abject is so core to this feeling of overwhelm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about objection? When we talk about objection, we're usually pulling from Julia Kristeva's work, Powers of Horror, and it's really the first 14 pages of this work where she unpacks this notion of objection, which draws from the work of Mary Douglas, who's a cultural anthropologist who worked on like disgust and revulsion and how that works to shore up identity, but then also to undo it. And so how that creates a relationship between self and other, or how it's othering, to quote Avgi. Within objection, the psychoanalyst Julia Kristeva intervenes. Within objection looms dark revolts of being directed against a threat that seems to emanate from an exorbitant outside or inside ejected from beyond the scope of the possible, the tolerable, the thinkable. It lies there quite close, but it cannot be assimilated. So it's that which is always somewhat internal to us, but it's fundamentally external insofar as it can't be assimilated back into us. So things like shit, spit, pus, breast milk, it's embodied and it's something that is like rejected and expelled and so there's this barrier crossing and then a barrier creation so it creates the barrier of inside outside but then it's also fundamentally part of us or it sort of exposes the extent to which those barriers are very porous as avgi points out the parallels with this and davis and dean's hatred of sex Mm -hmm. where this is also the hatred of democracy right so where the borders must be constantly maintained, even though those borders are illusory, because the exclusion of the other, the things that do not constitute what the ego is or what the identity is. So if you have like a strong national identity, like what makes you American, then you're always guarding against the foreign other that could destroy that body. And that inherently is this object, which is also the reason that the individuals that make up a democracy, while they may praise democracy as a whole, still the idea that there are, you know, these others that have this like equal vote to you is kind of horrific that, for instance, the Trumpian right, you know, we are always a little horrified that there is this reactionary fascist vein that wants to constantly expel otherness and that also a lot of like liberal ideology also holds to and that even leftists even us the idea for me that democracy is like 
functioning when there's like rising fascist movements and like yes it's a broken democracy that is like legislating against my basic rights but it is also technically a democracy and so there's a revulsion there's a horror to that so to quote again we are drawn to these bodily excrements and where we repudiate that draw disgusterizes for bataille in particular the accession of such appetites came hand in hand with human beings becoming civilized and are moving away from our animality so like the introduction of cleansing rituals or of appropriate behavior so if we think about last episode where we were talking about how a sexuality that attempts to shore up an ego by being this sort of reduced thing that actually just like builds connectivity mm -hmm. and doesn't really interject with the ego like that's what i think of when i think of like the confines of cis heteronormativity right is that it's a sexuality that is trying to conform as strictly as possible to all of these identity formations so that they don't actually contradict the structures and powers that be in any meaningful way. And like when I think about leather queer sexuality, the abject is such a foundational part, you know, like spit and sweat and piss. <laughs> All of those things are so often involved in our sexuality. And it always feels so alien to me to think about straight people who are like, afraid of their own bodily functions and like disgusted by each other's fluids oh, yeah that there's like this inherent disgust and also respecting and making boundaries like very strict boundaries around that disgust because obviously you would want nothing to do with it sex should only be about penis and vagina orgasm then like you know get everything else away mm -hmm. is just so counter to how i understand sexuality Oh my God, this is not my story. <laughs> Just, I'm literally talking about a friend here. But I, I had a friend who was dating this guy that was so, and I think this literally might count as like anal retentive, like in a Freudian sense, about sexuality and about cleanliness, that he would make her shower before sex. Whenever they kissed during sex, he would wipe both of their mouths. So there wasn't any spit, like lingering saliva. And then he would also make her shower after if they were going to cuddle. So like just all of this purification and all of this, making sure that there is no fluids. Yeah, real American psycho shit. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> he was also like a fireman. Like he's just like... <laughs> That's weird. I've... Like isn't the whole drama fireman that they're a little like, you know, rugged and dirty, you know, getting up in the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so just that kind of like taking the sex out of sex like so what what are they doing at that point like then there is just a penis going in a vagina and maybe some orgasms but just taking away like everything that blurs the boundaries between self and other so like any kind of fluids because that's what fluids do is fluids expose the porosity of those boundaries and that's like what any kind of like experiencing someone else's body as like being part of your body or within your body and that could just be like the kind of exchange that happens like when you kiss someone and there's like a bit of saliva or different forms of penetration like with different objects or different parts of your body mm -hmm. yeah like the way that Avgi says it right here delights whose intensities refuse to shrivel under the thick crust of shame i think <laughs> that's a really nice way of thinking about it <laughs> It's not that like shame isn't there. We all still have the same 
social or not exactly the same, but we all have some form of constructs around shame and around policing of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And our ego is formed around these like dominant power systems, but to still find the delight despite that shame and despite those feelings and actually (laughs) potentially because of it is I think the real joy of Mm -hmm. the sexual that can bring those elements of the unconscious that are not translated into anything into light. Mm -hmm. I also want to return really quickly back to Adam because you described him as being fucked and he certainly was fucked, but Avgi leaves ambiguous what that meant. So he orgasmed, but we just know that he was in a sling and we know that some interaction happened. So whatever that transgressive moment was, whatever that connection was, like it certainly wasn't normative. It's open because it isn't the act itself. It's everything that's surrounding it that gave it its meaning, that made it object, and that created the possibility for that pleasure. Mm-hmm. For Avgi, then, the erotic, we might say, has more to do with what appears as an effect of the unconscious when we bend our will to allow ourselves to be disarmed in the encounter with our own and the other's opacity, right? So in that way, you know, like, very safe cis-heteronormative sex is like not erotic because you are protecting all of those lines of the ego. You are making sure that you are not challenged or overwhelmed. But like for her, this limit consent then is to bend your will to experience overwhelm to confront both the opacity of the other and more importantly, the opacity of the self, so that it will arise things in you that you are not the master of, that you don't have control over, and that that is something that we are very much taught because we're a society that wants control of self. We want safety all the time. We want to be able to expect exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to give ourselves over in that way. In introducing this clinical vignette, I think what's really interesting and very subversive, and I mentioned this in the first episode, what I love so much about the psychoanalytic approach is that it ends up being very critical of psychoanalysis while also like stealing (laughs) the most interesting insights. She's not trying to figure out the meaning of that interaction. She's trying to figure out what that interaction does. She's not trying to figure out why. She's trying to figure out how. And so it's like limit consent is not just about something that can be mapped on as like Mm -hmm. a math problem of the exact perfect way to navigate consent. The project is not to create the perfect ethical system to steer Mm -hmm. ethical relations. It's providing a framework as an alternative to affirmative consent and how we can become receptive to our own otherness from ourselves, our own opaqueness. She has here what I think is a very helpful thesis statement. So I'm not interested in instituting universal laws to steer ethical relations, but in how we may become receptive to our own alterity when relating to others. My goal is to navigate perversity's foothold in the unconscious and the way that the bending of the will, remember that Adam wanted to leave the room, can open us up to an aesthetic experience. Yeah. Sexuality, then, it's not an exercise in good <laughs> politics. It's not an exercise in equality. It's not to show how good of a feminist you are. <laughs> um, desire is not something where you're 
you know, planning something so that everything is proper. What you're doing is you're creating something that is mutual and consensual, but it arises within a consensual framework. But at the same time, elements of it are allowed to be spontaneous, Mm -hmm. are allowed to arise within that confrontation. Yeah, because there's always an unknowable aspect to every consensual encounter because you need to be able to give and withdraw from it. Absolutely. It's interesting, right? Because I think personally, like I have more boundaries around complete strangers. I'm not like a big hookup person because I do have concerns for my legitimate safety. And so I do try to like have some amount of vetting when I'm like putting myself into that level of vulnerability and to be able to have that negotiation, not to say that there's anything wrong with people risking that limit consent, you know, with a stranger, but that's personally something that would not even attract me because Mm -hmm. what I seek within the overwhelm is to be in spaces where I know that I am cared for, (laughs) that people that have my best interests at heart, but also then to give myself over to them. So I am not negotiating the, I do have hard limits that I know are not going to happen to me because I know that I absolutely do not want that to happen to me, but I am not creating the exact terms for what is going to happen to me at any given moment. I am submitting to that openness at any moment, you know, that may be enacted upon me. Mm -hmm. And that does not require my consent, Mm -hmm. because the consent has already been given. And then there's also, you know, safeguards to revoke consent like safe words but yeah only through a framework like limit consent are like bdsm communities able to create the very like meaningful beautiful relationships that we're able to make yeah i could speak to the up aspects because i think on some level i engage in like spates of sexual nihilism And there's something nice about the limit consent framework because part of what attracts me to hookups is just a curiosity. It isn't because I think I'm going to have some mind-blowing connection. In fact, I go into hookups being open to the fact that it might not even be a good time, but that I am learning something about myself and that I'm learning something about my limits or my desires. So there's a kind of nihilism that I'm playing with there super interesting <laughs> well and like e- even uh, no 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 like not in a negative way i mean like hookups more casual um situations like have been really important to like the development of figuring out aspects of my sexuality and like uh-huh. how i want to structure it it's like there has been meaningful experiences there so yeah <laughs> i can relate to adam in the sling of just like Seeing someone and sort of feeling like confused and not even necessarily attracted, but just curious or like feeling a desire that you can't really put your finger on. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes both ways. So Adam had the incredible orgasm and the incredible self-shattering, but I've had like lousy encounters that have been positive with the self-shattering just because I learned something about myself and it made me feel like more comfortable or more at home with the boundaries that I have are more comfortable or more at home with my lack of boundaries in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Sexual nihilism. <laughs> yeah. The 
juries out of whether or not it's especially healthy. But. Yeah. You know, kind of at the basis of that is that like, even though I personally try to do that in like pre-negotiated relationships, mm-hmm. it's true that the kind of radical potential and the reason I'm so drawn to these frameworks is because that is still the experience that I'm seeking where full intentionality, like planning out everything, knowing what you are getting is antithetical to the type of self-shattering of the ego that we are talking about, that it's being willing to be open to the complexities of desire that only arise through experience. Mm -hmm. So polymorphous perversity, when she says that her goal is to navigate perversity's foothold in the unconscious, what does that mean? (laughs) So as we talked about last episode, for Freud, there is a infantile sexuality where everything is related to in parts And so it's this like sensuous world. You have maybe like the part of your mother's skin or you have like this object. Everything is related to in this like very disconnected parts way. Like things are like quite literally objectified. (laughs) Like objectification is part of it. Mm -hmm. But then also Freud at different parts in his career goes into this like kind of more adult erotics where basically this infantile sexuality is structured and disciplined into inappropriate sexuality for the opposite sex, you know, hopefully within marriage. So even though it is still a part sexuality, like it's still oriented towards a gender and like a type of genitals and like a very specific type of sex that is like the appropriate sex, because it is this incredibly appropriate closed bubble it is not thought of as a perversity. It is just thought of as how attraction should function. Mm-hmm. While as infantile sexuality, infantile sexuality is like perversion, right? Like, And so like one of the insights of Freud that Sake Tapolo maintains and, and also that like hatred of sex excavated is this idea that like perversity is kind of at the root of sexuality, that this controlled cis-heteronormative adult sexuality is actually like the defanged sexuality mm-hmm. and perversity is actually at the base of the unconscious. It is actually like the good sexuality that leads to the self-shattering. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that is what the polymorphously perverse sexuality is, is this acknowledgement that not only is perversity normal and everyone has it, but it is actually actively good. Actively good maybe is not the way to put it, but it actively has this ability to disrupt the ego. And because the ego is constructed around all of these power structures of like dominant power paradigms, that there is something about sexuality specifically that has this disruptive power beyond language, beyond the translatable, that can make the ineffable come to light, that has this transformative power. Mm -hmm. And that circles back into the how of the transgression versus the why the transgressions, what led to it? Like, how did this come about? How do we feel about it? How is it changing us versus like, why? (laughs) So she writes, I argue for perversity as an erotic possibility with political potential 
the vicissitudes of which deserve the effort and nuance of our critical attention. So not to ask why homosexuality, but how homosexuality. And then to go a little bit farther, Freud did not mean that everyone is a behavioral pervert, not that there would be anything wrong with that, but that all sexuality, independently of its behavioral expression, has the alien and the perverse swirled in it. If the perverse underwrites all sexuality, rather than ask perversity to account for itself, we might instead ask after docile, tame, and subdued sexualities that may suffer from having lost their footing in the perverse. Mm. So here, this also like carries on to an ethics that can connect to other things. So instead of asking why trans, instead of asking like, why am I a transsexual? Like, what is it about my transness? Like, how does it arise for me? What is it doing in my life? That like actually trying to find the origin point, you can absolutely do that. There can be a pleasure to that self-interrogation, that trying to put meaning over things. But there's Mm -hmm. something different about taking the actual thing in and of itself and taking it on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really fascinating about this approach is that it really meets with the way that I understand philosophy of mythology where things have to be taken on their own terms. So the gods were not scientific entities that like literally existed in the way that we think about truth or the real these days. But it's also not just like fiction. It's also not just like a thing that doesn't exist. It's that there is something contained within the myth, within the narrative that is irreducible to a rational explanation for it. And that is the reason we have the myth in the first place. Like that is the power of storytelling, of mythologizing. It is telling something that cannot just be explained by a breaking down of what the individual things mean. There is something beyond that that taps into the unconscious. And so that's what great art is doing. Mm. We've been talking a lot about the unconsciousness, and I just think it might be very helpful to remind ourselves and just to hammer home this point. So like, yes, there is this critical engagement. But again, insofar as it's not about the why and it's about the how, it's always an engagement with the opaque. So there's always going to be a remainder or always going to be something that we can't quite get at. And so it's this opaque space. And so she quotes Perry Zern and I have to quote Perry Zern too, because he's the reason I went to DePaul. (laughs) Um, So opacity, Perry Zern describes, insists upon a space for curiosity, marked not by clarity, but complexity, where histories break and incommensurability cracks open. So it's the curiosity of this stranger walks into the room, Adam sees him and feels this naked sense of desire and shame that he's curious about, that he doesn't understand about himself, that he needs to then experience and that even after he experiences, still can't quite put words to because it is, as you mentioned, untranslatable. Absolutely. This claim about how perversity functions, it's To take a step beyond, let's say, like during our Hatred of Sex series, when we talked about Gail Rubin's benign sexual variation, trying to argue that basically like all forms of sexuality are all basically like completely normal variation between things. Saki Tapolo is actually reverting that and saying, no, actually perversity, the unbound sexuality that is not bound to these like safe forms of identity and these containers that control it 
is actually the thing that has this potential, that it is perversity that we need to attend to and think of it as something more than just non-normative sex practices Mm -hmm. and also sidestepping pathology. (laughs) You know, like Gail Rubin's work is incredibly fucking important and presented an alternative to an extreme pathologizing of anything beyond non-normative sexuality. And that is obviously a much worse phenomena. Mm -hmm. When we think about perversion or if we think about the infantile sexuality being sexuality, like this is something that I've talked a a lot about on the internet, how, for instance, a lot of like asexual frameworks, a lot of like the asexual or aromantic spectrums are things that I think are like already built into like a lot of leather queer sexuality because as opposed to saying that like oh sexuality like I don't want sex what leather queers are doing through this reliance on what Freud and Saki Tapolo would call the infantile sexuality is that it dramatically expands sexuality to be the erotic, the sensuous, like feeling good by like touching something. Like if you touch a texture, like being into something, that all of that is connected and that it Mm -hmm. is actually our intense categorization and putting it only into the box of the genitals and marriage is actually like a really unfortunate thing that we've done. Mm -hmm. And so then when you talk about the polymorphously perverse, then you get these like accusations of people doing these like really horrific things. So for instance, Saki Tafalo brings up Sophie Lewis's (laughs) commentary on the Oscar winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher, which um, we love Sophie Lewis on the pod. She's the one that wrote Full Surrogacy Now and Abolish the Family. But she talks about how this documentary of this kind of like relationship between like this man relating to this octopus talks about how it's like deeply erotic basically the documentary's protagonist begins to visit an octopus a voyeuristic visitation that vibrates on an erotic frequency with colonial undertones this voyeurism is awash in perversity in fact it is in some sense queer because it is so perverse could we just talk about the documentary for a minute (laughs) yeah no exactly for those who haven't seen it uh because like the internet like got so mad at Sophie Lewis, but there are montages from this documentary, which it's a beautiful documentary. I think that I've heard nothing but good things about the scientists that made it. Like he's pro-conservationist, like it's very good. But there are montages with like soft music playing and him and the octopus like embracing each other, like tentacles wrapped around his body, and he's just sort of floating in this like beautiful ocean with the light sort of reflecting underwater and it's a lot (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and like Sophie Lewis's point is that the documentary like it can't actually make itself go to the conclusions of like what the documentary is actually about which is like a romantic relationship between an octopus and a man Mm -hmm. (laughs) um oh yeah (laughs) but like and then like of course when she starts talking about the erotic like in this relationship between the octopus then there's of course immediately accusations of bestiality or feeling that sophie lewis is like accusing this man of like abusing the octopus like doing fucked up horrible things and that's not what she's saying because she's talking about something very different than our typical understanding. And that's the problem with perversity is that it does include genuine ethical horrors, the same that Mm -hmm. 
sex that is contained safely within the boxes of cis heteronormativity also contains horrors. And we need to figure out the ethical frameworks to make those lines around how we construct consent and bodily autonomy. And, you know, as we've talked about on the show a lot, we are not a society that has a lot of bodily autonomy. And so lots of the time, Mm -hmm. so many of the things that the family does as an institution is to like completely deny the child bodily autonomy at all, which is also why like sexual abuse happens in the family the vast majority of the time. Mm -hmm. And like, it is very good Mm -hmm. for us to have laws protecting minors and to have these boundaries so that we are protecting what is horrible, horrible harm, but also like the talking of sexuality as anything outside of the genital within the marriage bed type of sexuality inherently gets you immediately accused of saying like people should be able to fuck kids and that's Mm -hmm. really fucked up and that's the reason the association has been made so many times you know that was like one of the main things used to attack gay men now it's being used to attack the trans community it's all about you know the protection of children when Mm -hmm. really like children are being victimized by the structure of the family like more than anything else Mm. The call is coming from inside the house. So back to the ethics of perversity. Sakitapolo puts it this way. Discourses that stake the permissibility of perverse desires on equity are oblivious to the effects of social asymmetries mm-hmm. ensuing from racial difference, class disparities, citizenship, standing, disability status, and so on. To demand equality as a precondition for sexual variation to be deemed benign is to effectively exclude relations between subjects with intersecting minoritarian identities from the captivating affinities between pleasure, pain, and anguish. And to go further down, they have shown that while lessons in good politics can leave us gasping with shame, they do not leave us breathless with arousal. So the project is not about denying the historical and structural circumstances that condition such desires, nor surrendering perverse sexual appetites to the cold shower of ethics or good politics. So saying that, for instance, um, consensual non-consent is one of my main things, which is a negotiated space in which then I am actively not consenting within like I have no verbal consent I may actually be actively protesting and like there's still safeguards there but that practice is seen by many people as inherently morally disgusting something that cannot be anything but abuse and something that is glorifying abuse when and like some of the structures around how because of affirmative consent for instance like I sometimes do scenes where I am you know, negotiated beforehand, but forced to become intoxicated as a thing that is negotiated that can happen to me. And so then, you know, therefore within this affirmative consent model, I should not be able to consent. I should not be able to do those things. I'm being inherently abused, which is what we would like to propose, not how we should structure sexuality. (laughs) Yeah. As she says, experience so defined stands to bring us into contact with our raw being. 
so here when we're talking about experience, it's not as in having an experience of something as when we take the reins of subjectivity. So it's not just like something we do, but it's something that we risk when we soften our grasp on those reins. So when we're talking about sexual experience here, we're talking about opening ourselves up to the opaqueness in the self and the opaqueness of the other, which is inherently to let go or to soften our grip on the reins of the ego. And I think most important to understand here is that for her, the reason that the ethical is not about legislating what is right and wrong to like make a perfect playbook of what makes something a violation or not a violation is because that framework can then be used to justify violation, right? Like, oh, if I meet these bullet points, it can't be like a massive violation when that's not how it works. And so we need to acknowledge in the only way that we're able to confront the way that violation actually occurs is to say that there is no silver bullet. There is no perfect way that we can be like, did you do all these things beforehand? Therefore, it was okay or not okay. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I was just thinking about how some of the most manipulative, like icky situations that I felt like I've ever been in are ones where people are going out of their way to very performatively get that affirmative consent every step of the way and so it feels like there hits a point where you can't say no or it feels like it hits a point where it's like you're really triple checking in a way that it feels like you think that you're doing something wrong oh absolutely yeah and you just want a contractual like safeguard and i would rather risk things and then be able to hold you accountable and also risk things and be able to say no and withdraw the consent than to get Every step of the way, again, this affirmative, like almost contractual moment where then it feels like, nope, we made it this far. You said yes. Can't take it away now. You said yes. Yeah. If you're going to take away your yes now, after you said the yes, like that's a retroactive removal of the consent and thus a false accusation. And you fall into this weird legalistic framework that comes along with affirmative consent that, again, is deeply disempowering and then also just takes away your ability to say no or to revisit past experiences and to be able to imbue them with different personal insights about yourself, like to be able to rethink past experiences. And that is just so constraining. It's so constraining on your erotic identity and your ability to process things and to grow. And then also just so constraining on your personal relationships to have an experience that, oh, they did everything correctly. You did everything correctly. You feel violated. Everything was done correctly. It's on you. Absolutely. And also that that can absolutely apply within more complicated BDSM negotiation Mm -hmm. structures too. You know, like the worst sexual encounter that was at least basically consensual at the beginning (laughs) that I've ever had. Like it started with someone who talked a big game about negotiation and had this really large form that I like had filled out beforehand. (laughs) But then... In the actual encounter, my hard limits were completely just like bowled over and ignored. And then my safe word, I would use it and she would pause for a second and then just like continue doing it. She like also like went over safe words by just inexplicably calling me daddy, even though, you know, she was like Dommy and I was the one being beat up. She was too drunk to notice that I was like sobbing. (laughs) 
Jesus. And, and, you know, in that situation, like, I didn't say anything in the moment. I waited until I was gone because of the power mm-hmm. there. I, I didn't feel safe to talk about it until afterward and be like, hey, that wasn't okay. And, like, you know, she was apologetic, but she also really believed that those things would be okay. And I think that, like, really brings up that we all have to understand that we are capable of harm. And I think something that is, like, common amongst a lot of cis women, especially, like, white cis women, mm-hmm. is this feeling that they are incapable of harm Mm -hmm. and so like almost like the shock that they could ever do anything bad and it's actually you know like you accusing them that is like the real attack there um Mm -hmm. I think that we need to all be very aware of the way in which sex is something in which we are always coming up against both our own opaqueness and the opaqueness of the other. And that involves always opening ourselves up to vulnerability and opening ourselves up to harm Mm -hmm. on some level. And, you know, that's a scary thing. And also the ability to harm. And that's a contentious space to be in. Yeah. And there is something that ties us back to the abject because there is something that makes us rethink the self-other relationship. So the kind of disgust one has to face off like when you realize that oh like society has told me as a white cis woman that I am the victim (laughs) but in this moment like I'm faced with the reality and that I am the one that did harm absolutely and you have to rethink that boundary you have to rethink your relationship with your identity because it is exactly due to and as you mentioned the power dynamics in that situation the the weaponization of the the whiteness of the cisness of the like heteronormative standards that had bled into that interaction although i don't want to say that they were intentional like i think that's part of what is so scary and disgusting about it is that like she had you fill out all of these applications like all of the t's were crossed and the i's were dotted like almost probably quite literally yeah only to violate them all yeah mhm and then the disgust, the arresting moment where the identity is undone and the script needs to change and shift. Anyone, no matter how marginalized you are, is like capable of great harm. But I think the more marginalized you are, the more you are mm-hmm. like deeply aware of that fact because society makes you constantly aware of it. You know, like people of color are made to constantly feel as Mm -hmm. like potential aggressors, you know, like gay men as potentially like perverted. And like as a trans woman, I am like hyper, hyper aware at all times of the way that like trans misogyny functions in society and the way that I conduct myself. And so like those power structures make us in some ways act in ways that internalize those power structures and make us like not do very normal things that we would like otherwise do that are, that aren't violating because of our own fear of how society can demonize us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So attachment theory, normative theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> marching us through each section. We talked in our hatred of sex segment about how attachment theory is kind of a detaching of Freud from Freud, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a kind of making safe of Freud. And, you know, attachment theory is an incredibly common way, like almost like a pop psychology way of people to understand themselves now. You know, everyone knows their like attachment Mm -hmm. theory. 
And it also is like an argument that like your psychosexual life is about connection, deep bonds and mutuality. So fundamental to attachment theory is basically the Freudian idea of the mature adult sexuality as Freud would have it and Mm -hmm. in some level a rejection of perversity and so maybe some more contemporary theories may say like oh well some perversity is actually acceptable within these relationships as long as they're like healthy relationships or as long as they're like if it's a marriage it's okay because then it's just a sexual adventure or whatever um (laughs) but it's still it's still about creating these boundaries about like what is the appropriate sexual desire and then what is the one that is like unbound that is like unhealthy and so it's inherently seeing that self-shattering or anything that could challenge the ego's boundaries and the ego's walls are seen as a negative as opposed to something that we actively need to pursue and think seriously and embrace Mm -hmm. and that there also is a degree of particular panic and incitement around the sexual. So as she notes that we mirror each other's emotions, like socially, so person to person, then also like quite tellingly, like like adult to child, like we mirror every emotion or we mention like, oh, you must be happy, you must be sad, but you don't say to another person, like you don't register their their response and say like, you must be turned on. Mm-hmm. Oh. Unless, unless you have cool friends, <laughs> foster those relationships, <laughs> find them and keep them close. So, what we need then is a theory of psychosexuality that isn't panicked, that isn't moralizing about sexual excitement and excitation. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't hate sex. <laughs> And so, like, you know, Saki Tablo talks about how, like, there have been folks that have explored elements of what she's trying to get to. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. Ruth Stein on the extraordinary poignancy of sexual experience, giving us an understanding of psych- psychosexuality as already dysregulated and also not recoiling from excitements of disgust and perversity. But at the same time, there is still always this, like, folding back into Mm -hmm. this pathologizing need and a walling up of the walls of the ego. So making sure that patients' libido do not feed on exploitation. So, you know, that there can be such thing as the practice of bad desire, even if it is like consensual desire, Mm -hmm. but like between adults and concern that the erotic may deteriorate and like a concern that the erotic can like deteriorate into obscenity and even the idea of obscenity that you are still trying to maintain the erotic as like this good healthy thing but then if you allow it to go too far oh no 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 that like that's the bad that's the bad perversion mm-hmm. now you're a sex addict <laughs> absolutely and so it's all good while it's sexual healing but now <laughs> yeah absolutely bdsm is therapy um, and <laughs> but not that kind yeah and so of course you know, like within that structure, within the way that we know how any sort of regulatory policing structures and pathologizing structures are, as she puts it, the normative dangers of such regulations are obvious, but to list them shortly, we can easily imagine that some subjects' racialization or gendered embodiment may unevenly select them for such regulation 
and that similarly non-normative desires may also more readily be diagnosed as being dangerously voluptuous and out of control. So if you're a person of color, if, if you're trans, if you're someone non-normative that's already other to like the therapist, your desires are inherently going to be seen as already more other and more pathologized than they would be normatively because your very nature, your very existence is already up and against the norm, is already mm -hmm. on some level perverse. <laughs> to have a sexuality as a trans person is to be perverse. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that Saki Tapolo wants to reject entirely. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the erotic limits of one sort or another, always slip in as critical to the preservation of order. So when we are talking about the opaqueness, when we are talking about the erotic, we can't start out from this place of like good politics mm -hmm. of like what is the correct way to make us equal in the bedroom. <laughs> equal orgasms for equal pay. Uh-huh. That'll fix everything. Break that glass ceiling, girl. <laughs> so what does it mean then to think with and not against pain? So moving us along into, into La Planche. Yeah. More so sod, Bataille, Blanchot, and Foucault. I'm so rather than engage in a traumatophobic approach to our relationship with the abject, so rather than to recoil from that disgust, she argues that we lean into it, we embrace that opacity when we're confronted with something that is self-shattering. So when Adam was in the stocks and that foreigner approached him, who he was both attracted to and repulsed by, something created a sort of turbulence. And then she argues... The notion that we are shattered not only in infancy, but if we are lucky again and again and again paves the way to our being able to think about traumatophilia, that is our attraction to the site of the traumatic. A return to the site of our constitutive trauma can be thus understood not as a route and mechanical recursion that is too hackenied to escape iteration, but as a way of touching inaugural wounds, opening up new possibilities. So in Adam's experience, suffering and pleasure amalgamated to blow him up and do a thousand tiny pieces hanging out in space like overheated pieces of dust. We may now understand this moment as having to do with how the rise in excitation arising out of Adam's visceral revulsion and erotic enthrallment overrode his ego's organized surfaces, rupturing it. Such shatterings may sound traumatic, but they are not necessarily so. So... Traumatic in the sense that it shattered him, but not traumatic in a traumatophobic sense. Traumatic in a traumatophilic sense. So in this way, she's thinking with the pain, thinking with the pieces, thinking what the wound opens up versus like mourning and being afraid of the wound in and of itself. So those violations um, and openings aren't just instances of harm. There are also instances of possibility because they create moments where we can remake the self or we can re-understand the self. And this kind of self-shattering can be thought of through many different thinkers. You know, as we introduced in Hatred of Sex, like Leo Bersani mm -hmm. in his The Rectum is a Grave introduced the idea of the self-shattering with disgust with one's death, that that is kind of a foundation 
of sexuality and that there's something inherent that we should pursue about that. And I think one of the biggest distinctions between Bersani and Sakatapolo here is that Bersani is a little bit nihilistic. Sakatapolo mm -hmm. also utilizes Jean Laplanche reorienting otherness as foundational to the way that we understand ourselves as opposed to thinking of ourselves as like the center of our own universe. We're thinking mm -hmm. of ourselves like actually circling with many other others, like we're always in base with other people. Mm -hmm. And then also including through Glissant, these ideas about how colonialism and these powers of domination very much construct our ego. And so through that, her claim is quite radical that in that self-shattering, there's an actual potential for a unraveling of the ego, of the things that we've translated into meaning, mm -hmm. of the meaning that we've already like coded onto the world that has this potential to be really fucked up, <laughs> and it almost definitely is, that within that self-shattering, there is actually a breaking apart of that meaning and a putting those like aspects that construct our ego back into the unconscious, a detranslation. And within that, it has a kind of radical potential of what that can make us confront about ourselves and about how we understand the world through coming into contact with those deep parts of ourselves. And so that would be the thinking with pain. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be literal pain, although... She is engaging with figures like Foucault and the Marquis de Sade. It is a painful experience to suddenly be confronted with the fact that you aren't quite who you thought you were or to be confronted that this thing that you were uncomfortable with is something that you desire or the idea that this thing that you deeply desired and this relationship that you felt very safe with is not safe in the ways that you thought it was. And, you know, she like also brings Bataille into this. Bataille through his engagement with Dassault's work posits that the possibility mm -hmm. for a very particular kind of experience lies at the transgression of the limit inner experience. So the limit marks the line between life and death, a death that we deny and the reality of which we refuse to confront. Though by death, he did not only mean the end to organic life, but a return to uninterrupted being. So inner mm -hmm. experience is a confrontation with what we would be talking about like as the unconscious, as these things that are not this like guarded, translated self into meaning, but the things behind that that make up the self. And through that self-shattering, we can begin to confront those things and have those experiences, which again is, I think, often akin to what a lot of people see as like religious experience. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that she's more optimistic than Bersoni, and I think that that's the transgressive element. And so she mentions key to transgressive pleasure is not tension reduction, but the pursuit of excitation, even to the point of exhaustion, the pursuit of that extreme, the pursuit of the limit, even if that means fully exhausting what that limit means. Absolutely. And so what does it mean to do things like we talked about with BDSM, that there's always this like self-helpification of like this attempt to make BDSM healthy, this thing that like shores up the self that makes us like more of a coherent being. Like 
What does it mean to pursue things that are not necessarily part of the project of the ego? What about human activities like the festival or, or this self-shattering of the erotic and like sacrifice of just extravagant waste for waste's sake, like pursuing vice because you like it? Not all of life needs to be or should be a rational project of a shoring up of the ego, and that is the tentacles of puritanical Christianity <laughs> reaching out to us that that everything in our lives has to be constructed into being better and more healthy, that there is meaning and value in experiences that aren't necessarily about moving towards being a person that like has a fucking house with a white picket mm-hmm. fence and a stable career, you know? Yeah. Well, not everything you have to do has to improve who you are and your life as a person. (laughs) It's not just about self-help. It's not just about self-improvement. Sometimes it's just about living. So, and I quote, instead of focusing on identifying and maintaining optimal levels of stimulation that protect the subject from being overwhelmed or arguing for relying on the other as a way of ensuring that injury and trauma are avoided, This volume asks after eroticism and performance that flows not away from, but toward overstimulation. Therein, in what I call the more and more of experience, an experience that presses into the unbearable, a state of overwhelm may arise. Chasing after this overwhelm just for the sake of overwhelm, not because it's going to heal us, not because it's going to make us better people, uh, more... (laughs) politically correct subjects but because there's something about it that like helps us live or just something about it that is so connected to the how we live and not the why we live i think it's also very interesting that she makes sure to point out that like the practices of you know this confrontation with overwhelm which again can be because of the incredible diversity of our own experience and the development of our unconscious could be completely different things for different people and change throughout our lives. It's not like, you know, there's this one activity that is going to be self-shattering for all people. But also she makes sure to say that courting the limit is not about triumphing over boundaries or intending to shock or to omnipotently triumph over limits. So if it was just about like mastering the self, you know, in this like kind of very masculine, like domination of the self, like I can climb the mountain and like control my body. Like, look at me. No fap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No fap. Absolutely. Like that, that is actually about assuring up of the ego. That is actually mm-hmm. about maintaining control of the ego. And Tim Dean and Oliver Davis and Hatred of Sex said, like, you can absolutely have sex in ways that are trying to shore up the ego. Like, cis-heteronormative sex can do that. But also, like, you know, there are some people that have endless hookups in a way to kind of divorce themselves from, from like, the actual, like, <laughs> potentiality of vulnerability, right? Of, like, the opening up of those experiences of overwhelm. <laughs> Like sex can absolutely be used as a way to shore up the ego or, you know, to like put conquest notches in your belt or whatever. It's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Yeah. so (laughs) It's not the sex that we conquer, but ourselves. Absolutely. And it's also Mm -hmm. not just being an edgelord. So Mm -hmm. like, it's not just like being shocking for shocking's sake. Uh, (laughs) Just imagining. Yeah. Like what that's like in sex. It's just like let's let's do this thing, not because I want to or you want to, just because it's outlandish. 
Ooh. Absolutely. <laughs> like you don't have to do something if it's not hot. Like please, like don't. Um, yeah. Or it's not disgusting in a hot way. Um, well, absolutely. Well, everything, <laughs> everything that's like really hot, it's disgusting in a hot way. Okay, let's be real. Um, <laughs> if the practices that are more conducive to limit work are scandalous or subversive, this is not for the sake of shock per se but because their exuberant energies are more likely to kindle the escalating economy of the sexual drive. Mm -hmm. So it's not like that the things in themselves are just trying to be subversive to be subversive. It's that they are practices in which you are offering yourself up to this opaqueness of the self and this vulnerability between self and other in ways that other types of sexuality don't necessarily come into contact with as often. Not to say that they can't, because again, anything can be anything for anyone. We're all very different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe good uh, missionary style vanilla sex could be the self-shattering moment for someone. I'm sure it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so just to finish off and like wrap back around to how this works, also how art can create these experiences of overwhelm. There's many different types of experiences that can activate or engage with the infantile sexuals. And many types of art, like paintings or certain types of movies. I would say the corporatification of so much of art today is about making mm. art as palatable to the ego as possible to like not challenge it in any meaningful way and to only give us feelings that are manageable and feel good all the time mm -hmm. when I think of movies or shows or books that are really meaningful to me they're things that self-shatter me in some ways things that challenge me that open myself up to things that I wouldn't otherwise feel and it's those things that like really stick in my head it's those things that are engage and bring up aspects of the self that you don't expect and so to go towards that experience of overstimulation to say like actually it's good to watch a movie and to want to turn away in disgust like it's good to be reading a book and be like damn I'm having a fucking hard time reading this page mm -hmm. that is actually an experience we should value as opposed to seeing that as something that is bad or makes the art bad the idea that all art should just be this like pleasant unthreatening unoffensive you know like nostalgia fest it's the death of art it's the death of art mm -hmm. and so to bring us back to adam which is the way that the chapter ends off that adam was disrupted in encountering this object with himself but it wasn't like a disassociation. It was actually a very deep confrontation with the self. It was, as Sakitapolo puts it, he was in an altered state of consciousness, a state of heightened attention, whereby he experienced an unusual sense of presence, a fleeting state of self-sovereignty. Adam literally has visions of different things that are associated with the sexual experience that he has during it, like semi-hallucinated black object, the reverberating sound, the jolting skin sensation he could not place. And mm -hmm. so we can think of these mythopoetically that these were not objects to be dissected with meaning. So rather than to cut them open and try to find the truth behind them, 
and killing off the thing that is like so vital about them, so meaningful. Mm-hmm. We have to follow the intensities of the things that arise in ourselves as they actually are. So what Sake Tapolo is suggesting here is that literally that experience of overwhelm makes it possible to experience the ineffable, to be able to confront the part of ourselves and the part of ourselves in relation to others that is completely opaque to ourselves, which is to, in my mind, confront the religious. And I think in some ways to also like confront God, Mm -hmm. what I would say. We came to appreciate that his sexual encounter had somehow rendered the ineffable into something that appeared in the world. The enigmatic thus came to have the effect of presence. So through talking about those things brings up new things in their sessions between Adam and Avgi, where new associated chains begin to form between these sensory experiences and parts of Adam's history that wrenched our attention from its previously habituated forces, stories that I had never heard before began to emerge, and others that had been repeated lifelessly for months began to stir with life. Something new mm-hmm. and enlivening was happening. Mm-hmm. So what is that thing? We will get back to it next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of confessions today... We asked a question about our introductory episode. So in the introduction to Avgi Saketapolo's Sexuality Beyond Consent, she writes about her client, Carmen, who consented to being slapped by her partner, but the slap was so exquisite, she felt overwhelmed and wanted to withdraw her consent. In her mind, she had consented to a mediocre slap, not an exquisite slap. Have you ever experienced your own form of exquisite slap, a moment that was so good that it was overwhelming to the point of being almost or entirely unbearable? So we asked that question on Instagram, and here are the answers that we received. I was once tied on a St. Andrew's cross, and two people were topping me in an impact scene. It was nice, but they ended it off with probably the most painful thing I've ever felt. Twin rubber dragon's tails struck my back at the same time, and the two of them were, of course, ecstatic and giddy. Only one hit and I was done. Aftercare was nice, though. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Definitely getting eaten out by my girlfriend for the first time after having very mid-sex with a man for a year. (laughs) Funny as hell, but my girl dressed up as a cowboy... And did a little striptease for me. I'm a sex worker, pretty desensitized to everything, but this was so odd and she's so beautiful. I felt like I was about to pass out. Oh, it's really cute. The first time my wife caned my lower back hard enough to leave a scar. Whoa. Bottom for five hours. She said, please, can I make you come one more time? I said, I will disintegrate. (laughs) (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Hot. (laughs) Was feeling suicidal. Asked my abusive ex to choke me, slapped me hard, left soon after. Being bitten so deeply, bruised hard, left with a mark so black and blue, I'm not sure what I've unlocked. First time my girlfriend talked. I had been penetrated before, but it never really affected me. Baby dyke things. Knife play that ended with me accidentally putting the blade about one inch into their shoulder. 
Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise abduction play still feels fucked up, but it's still one of my favorite memories. (laughs) Being degraded, but like really degraded and used like an object. My fantasies came to life so perfectly, it was uncomfortable, and I cried, but I was euphoric. Mm-hmm. The way my boyfriend bites me sometimes. It's so overwhelmingly stimulating. I can't process it well, despite it feeling amazing. Having my dick slapped. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. Final confession. A final slap. The final exquisite slap. <laughs> so this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I'm a dancer, and I was recently working with a choreographer making a duet together. At one point in the process, he, without asking, grabbed my shoulder and pulled me into a lift, and it was fantastic. I distinctly remember feeling relieved that I could work with someone who wasn't afraid to move me before I was ready. I feel like not only can valuable personal experiences come from going beyond consent, but so can valuable artistic ones. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah, it really gets to the core, too, of the aesthetic experience. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's all we have for today. If you would like to help us keep the show going, go sign up at patreon on www.patreon.com slash drunk church we have just dropped within this last week tons of incredible merch including mm-hmm. a saint Teresa ahego sweatshirt things with you know a little bit of bataille chic some for the hairway heads with like some cyborg manifesto goddess is dead stuff god's mm-hmm. little plaything. There, there's just something for everyone mm-hmm so yeah, take a look at that. And we look forward to seeing pictures of everyone and their cute merch. Yes, please, please, if you buy our stuff, take very cute, hot pictures or, you know, whatever type of pictures you want to take and um, <laughs> tag us, send them to us because, yeah, we want to see you rock them. Have a wonderful rest of your week and God yeah. bless. God bless. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new dream Just when my old Crumbled so helplessly In that vine-covered chapel on the hill Your face was a hymn that lingers still So bless you My darling, my angel, heaven is mine and life is divine with you.
bless you, darling, for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Bless you for building a new dream. Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly. In that vine-covered chapel on the hill, your face was a hymn that lingers still. So bless you, my darling, my angel, heaven. 